the Read to Lead podcast, episode 24. Hey, I'm Natalie Sisson, author of The Suitcase Entrepreneur, and you're about to enjoy another awesome episode of the Read to Lead podcast with my 4,156th favorite American, Jeff Brown. Whether you're a CEO or you're in transition, whether you want to start something on your own, I want to maximize my ability to help others and to help people find what they're best in. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable feedback from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now, here's Jeff. Wow, where did the time go? Hard to believe it's December already. I am Jeff, and I'm excited because our guest today is Dr. Bill Diamond, who with Dr. Marcus Dayhoff has co-authored a book called Fire Your Excuses. And he'll help us unlock the secrets of that unique 8 to 10% of the population who are able to achieve lasting changes to destructive habits and behaviors and do what he calls, as the title of his book indicates, Fire Your Excuses. That conversation coming up here in just a moment. I want to say thanks to each and every person who signed up for Podcaster Academy. This is an online podcasting course taught by me that kicks off in February. It's limited to just 25 students. In fact, the first 25 students will be able to attend the month-long course for just Two ninety-seven. It makes a great Christmas gift if you know somebody who is launching a podcast soon or has recently done so. And this is a course that gets into the art and science of podcasting, how to present your content in a professional, conversational, and natural way, how to conduct enjoyable to listen to and thought-provoking interviews, how to craft an effective open and close for your podcast that gets results. You'll learn this and so much more at Podcaster Academy. Find out more, by the way, at podcasteracademy.com. Be sure to sign up now before all the seats are gone. That's podcasteracademy.com. Dr. Bill Diamond heads Diamond & Associates Incorporated based in Costa Mesa, California. He received his PhD in clinical psychology from Biola University, specializing in the area of employee change and stress management. He delivers some 200 presentations a year to such organizations as Disney Worldwide Studios, Hewlett-Packard, and Verizon Wireless. He's a popular radio guest and soon-to-be popular podcast guest, I'm sure. He also maintains a counseling and coaching practice. His articles on stress, time management, and relationships appear in professional and popular journals. An acute interest in the needs of the developing world has taken him to Africa, South America, and Eastern Europe. He is the co-author, along with Dr. Marcus Dayhoff, of Fire Your Excuses, and he is our guest today. Well, welcome, Dr. Diamond, to the Read to Lead podcast. We're so excited to have you here today. Well, thank you. It's great to be here with you, Jeff. To sort of set the tone for the rest of the interview, I need to ask this question. You say early in your book, Fire Your Excuses, that at least in the U.S., we're a nation that has grown really fond of making excuses. And I got to ask, what happened to us? And in your opinion, when did it happen? Well, thanks. You know, my co-author, Dr. Dayhoff, and I, we're not historians, but we are researchers. And we noticed a few things, both um, economically as well as our health. Uh, Here's a few. Our waistlines, as you hear so much about, began to expand. And we found a stat in 1990. uh, Only 10 states had an obesity of, of less than 
15 percent. Um, and then now today, every single state in the nation has an obesity rate of at least 20 percent and a dozen more than 30 percent. And we said, hey, what's going on? There's obviously something happening in the way we view food. food and I think excuses aren't the only explanation, but they're a big part of it. Also, our savings, and we could look at the economy, but we wanted to look at data even before the recession hit that was is kind of winding down, hopefully, now. But, you know, in 1984, we noticed that 11% was the amount that people saved, even as recent as 2004, which was definitely before the current recession, that number was down to 1.2. And we just saw wow. stat after stat of, ty- of things that we couldn't explain just because of external reasons. We said, you know, that's part of it, but some of it has to do with us. Well, as we, as we dig into this, we're talking about reversing behaviors, reversing the, these excuses that for many of us have existed for a really long time. And you say that you know, things like, quote, trying harder and, and getting more disciplined, which is what most of us strive for, just isn't enough. That permanent change has to be won at a far deeper level. And I was wondering if you could expound on that just a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've got to be clear with what we mean by excuses. And uh, some of my listeners here might take issue with that and say, well, you know, having a weakness, having this and that, that's not necessarily excuse. And what we say is um, it's not having one, it's not doing something about it. And we know that there's things that, that hold us back And as much as we want to try harder in those New Year's resolutions, we know that so many don't achieve them. And so we've said, you know, don't try harder, get more connected. That is going to make all the difference in the world. We may not be able to do what we need to do to change some of those areas, but we are responsible. And we use the metaphor of having, say, diabetes, that you are responsible to get some help with that, but you can't just muscle your way through diabetes. You may need to take something. You may need to get some help. So you're responsible, and getting more connected is huge. Um, There's a classic study that we've quoted for years, and it's out of UCLA. And it's pretty fascinating. People always ask me, well, what do you exactly mean by it? But here it is. We need three to four one-hour deep connections to function at our best. And so people say, what do you mean by that? Well, people that you can really go deep with, that you can be real with, that will call you on things, that will listen. And we just know from our research that most Americans don't come close to that. So we say, hey, don't shoot the messenger, but if you can get more connection in your life, a lot of those habits are going to be exposed. You're going to do better at them. You're going to be less depressed. And a lot of people are functioning in this kind of what we call subclinical um, depression state. And this is what UCLA found. Never, maybe never see a psychologist, never get medication, but never going to charge the hill in their, at their work or in their entrepreneurial endeavor. So we just say, hey, get more connected. Don't just try, how, try harder. Willpower isn't going to make it. And then I love that statement. I think it's attributed to JFK. A rising tide lifts all boats in the harbor. And that rising tide is really about connection. So we encourage people just to get connected this year as the year ends and in 2014. It makes all the difference in the world. You, you talk about these life areas. There, there are eight that you concentrate on in the book, the areas where our excuses do the most damage. Blind spots and weaknesses, health and wellness, social connections, communication, time management, finances, career, and serving. Now, we don't have time to cover all of them, uh, but I want to cover at least four or five. And of these eight areas, you begin in the book with one you touched on a moment ago, blind spots and weaknesses. Why is it so important that we begin with this one? Well, we think it's foundational. You know, there's an old joke that if you're so happy, I don't think your face got the memo. <laughs> and, and there are people that just are the last to know. 
And uh, just last week, Jeff, uh, somebody pointed out something in my, the way I was doing business that I had just never, ever considered. It was just like out of the blue. And I like to see myself as a fairly self-aware guy, but uh, this was a blind spot and, and we all have them. And by definition, they're things that we just don't see. So I'm always um, fascinated by how do we get that information? Some people are into the 360s and some people like those, some people don't. Other people are very good at seeking and sourcing that information about the areas. But we talk about, um, you know, my friends and I, not in the book per se, but the, the, the concept of the ugly baby syndrome. Have you heard about this one? Yes, I have. <laughs> you know, the idea that nobody says your book or your baby is ugly. It can be terrible. But, uh, you know, we don't want to say any baby's ugly per se, but we can definitely say a lot of people won't tell us the truth. And for that, we can languish at a level of mediocrity for years. But the people that do the best are very much aware of the need to ferret out these blind spots and to deal with weaknesses that they may be minimizing. I think of the old Seinfeld episode, your baby is breathtaking. (laughs) (laughs) I hesitated for several days because I just thought it was going to take a long time, but it didn't. I took the Fire Your Excuses self-assessment at your website, fireyourexcuses.com, and I was hesitating because I saw it was 82 questions and I thought this thing is going to take forever. It took like 10 minutes. Yeah, Uh, pretty quick. Yeah, very, very quick. My weakest area is health and wellness. And so first, so that we're all on the same page, how do you define this category in the book? And second, why do you think, as you say in the book, that so many people grossly overestimate how long they're likely to live? Yeah, well, to answer that first part, we define health and wellness as self-care. So that, of course, encompasses the physical part of us, but also, you know, social, spiritual, mental. And what we have found, Marcus and I, is that you know, working with CEOs, working with people in our office, coaching the whole nine yards, is that there are people that are out there just um, breaking down walls, um, running the free world, and yet their, um, their, their greatness is encompassed in a very fragile uh, physical body that uh, has no necessary, and that's not necessarily going to last them. And, and they tend to be so focused on what they're doing that they don't realize that their health habits could end the game at any point. And I, I've seen CEOs that are doing extremely well, but yet at any moment, it seems like some of their health issues could take them out of the game. So what we know is this, we know that when we give people a life um, expectancy calculation and we give them an assessment, there's lots of these online, you can just Google them, that people, if we ask them to say, how long do you think you're going to live? They'll say 85, they'll say 90, my grandfather lived this long. And there is some truth to those genetics. But when we look at the statistics, people across the board will give themselves seven to 10 extra years based on the health habits that they're answering. So there is this kind of self-serving denial that I think we're all in. I remember my sister telling me, you know, how are you going to spend the last third of your life? And I'm saying, I'm only halfway through. And she's going, no, real Bill, statistically, you're not. Um, At a recent Fortune 500 company, we had somebody, uh, we had people do this, and it worked out that we had exactly 100 in the room. And I had them all stand up, and and I signed 13 people to sit down, and they wondered what was up. And I said, look at the people that are seated. Statistically, this is the number, 13 out of 100, that will not make it to retirement will you be alive at your retirement? Mm. And it was just a shocking and stunning uh, statistic to read, and it was shocking for them to hear. So there's that. Let me give you one more, Jeff, if I can. This was a real sobering and wake-up call challenge. One-third of Americans that are 73 years old can't walk a brisk quarter mile. They might be able to amble along with some effort, but they can't power walk even a quarter mile. Mm. 
So I know a lot of people that says, you know, when I retire, I'm going to walk the lake. We're going to hike. We're going to do this. We're going to ski. But I say, that's great. But only if you're in that 23, 25% that can do that. And the question is, will you and I be in that group or our listeners be in that group? So we just feel like this is so foundational. Uh, There's other aspects beyond the physical health, but so many of us that are doing great things are not taking care of our body. And we look at even the medical doctor statistics, my sister's an MD, et cetera. Most of them don't come close to the three or four days of exercise that is is suggested or if not required. I guess I should uh, take up my dog's plea to go on a few more walks. (laughs) There you go. We're not going to ask for any confessions here, but I can tell you this, there's something for all of us here, I think. Well, I guess in part because the social connections area seems to be one of, of, of strength for me. I was surprised to read that most of us lose quality connections with others as we, as we grow older. In fact, you say that, that a shrinking social network was recently identified as epidemic, at least within our uh, Western culture. Why do you think that is? Well, it's interesting when I speak to audiences that have a lot of folks that are from overseas, I'll ask them this and they'll heartily agree. And that's this. Um, I'll say, you know, would you think that the country that you came from was more connected than the United States? And they will all shake their head. Absolutely. Yes. But why people come to the States, of course, is for a lot of the opportunities. So we have some material wealth, but we're disconnected as a culture. And there's lots of reasons for that, longer commutes. But when I look at just kind of the progression of life, most of our social moments, our schooling, our secondary education, maybe even military service, sports, if you've been involved in music, if you've been single for a period of time or single again, these are all things that are highly social. When we tend to settle down and have families, we tend to miss some of that. So I think it was Ben Johnson who said a few centuries back, if a man or a woman doesn't continually replace his or her friendships, he or she will arrive at old age very much alone. And so we need to continually um, reboot our friendships. And, and one of the things that I think is fun for me is to say my best friend may be somebody that I haven't even met yet. Somebody even in my, in my LinkedIn contacts that's there in name only that I just need to reach out to. So I think our culture doesn't get this very well, but there are definitely people in different subcultures within the United States where maybe like yourself, you're, you do very well at it. And this is something you can change, and it may take a couple of years, but we can definitely make a change in this. You know, I hear a lot of people say, you know, I've spent my whole life making friends. I don't, I don't need to make any more. I, I, I can't keep up with the ones I already have. Yeah, and that, and that is definitely true. Um, I do love this statement, and I know Dan Miller and others have made this popular, and I don't know who originally thought of it, but the idea that it says that um, you are the average of the five to six closest friends that you have. And, and some of us, we have the friends, but if we look at their ways of living, we love them dearly. They may be family, but we may need to get some other people on the bus. That's what I would say. Yeah, I think that was uh, Jim Rohn, if I'm not yes, mistaken. Yes, I think so. I think he was originally attributed to that. Well, my other high score was in the communication category. This is not about me, but it, it also showed me that depending on the setting, I can tend to dominate conversation and not realize that I'm doing it. I'm not as self-aware as I need to be in that area. Why is it relatively common for people with strong communication skills, you think, to overestimate their skills in this area? Well, I got to laugh, Jeff. On my desk, I have a little note. It says, don't talk over Jeff, (laughs) because I can be that way too. And my family will say, you know, Bill, I didn't sign up for your seminar. I don't remember registering for your class. And and the more you learn, and I know we were talking um, before the broadcast about just how much we love to read books. And I don't know about you, but the more I know, the more if you just bump me, something's going to a factoid is going to spill out. And 
I know my sister Wendy loves traveling with me because I'm Mr. Amateur Historian, and she's saying I'm not ready for that. So that's part of it. You know, we mistake, I think, verbal fluency and subject knowledge with tact and, and timing. And so I definitely struggle with that. And, and so I always say if you take the average number of people, whether it's a business meeting or a lunch or even a social gathering, and divide that time out, uh, say with there's three people around a conference room, if you're speaking more than 33% of the time there, you better be darn interesting. And uh, it's, so, it's so challenging. Another one I heard, and this goes way back, I think, to um, – how to win friends and influence people, but they were talking about two great statesmen of yesteryear from England. I think it was Benjamin Disraeli and William Gladstone. And I forget who was who, but a famous actress had dinner with both of them. And somebody asked, well, how did you like the first statesman? And she said, you know, when I was with him, I thought I was talking to one of the greatest minds of all of England. And then they asked her, well, what about the second gentleman? And she said, when I finished my dinner with him, I felt like I was one of the greatest minds of all of England. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, what do you communicate? How wonderful you are or how wonderful they are? If you think you're great, you, you need a second opinion. Yeah, people remember how you made them feel, don't they? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you say that in the area of finances, this is uh, an area of struggle for me when it comes to saving especially, we can often employ some of the most damaging excuses and defensiveness. What are some of the most common ones you've seen come up in this category? Yeah, I think the one that we've all probably used, but it can be deadly, is I've got this one bill, this one debt, and once I finish paying this off, then I'm just going to be a tiger when it comes to this savings or investment plan that I use, I really need to do. And, and I just say, you know, that day can never happen. There's always going to be another surprise payment or bill. Um, you need to be able to do some of these simultaneously. And we could, you know, the scope of this talk doesn't allow us to go into interest rates and strategy. But I think as a general rule, we tend to say, I'm going to get rid of this and then I'm going to catch up. And that day never happens. On the positive, um, it's amazing just, just um, financial redirection in very small increments over time. Um, I actually looked this up. I think I went to bankrate.com, and they've got a lot of great calculators. But if you take even just $20 a week, and that could be a couple lattes, it could be a movie, it could be a drink or two, it doesn't take much to spend that extra 20 And you put that away with a modest saving or investment account. In 35, 40 years, you have well over $100,000 to play with. And that's money that would make the difference between cutting coupons and going on cruises and buying that nice car or even a property. So there's Little, little things like that that make a huge, huge difference. And I think we all know starting late is not a good way to go. And I would say anybody that has kids, um, you know, help them understand that just putting a little bit away now and maybe even matching funds. I've heard that if you start at 16 and you go to 22 and your child puts in two grand for the year and you put in two grand, uh, they're done for a million dollars at retirement. That's all it takes is that total of about $24,000. They put half in, you put half in. But I think we all would like to go back to our younger self and do that. But we, uh, we think we have all the time in the world and then we're, we're not in that situation. We hinted earlier that uh, permanent change is more than just trying harder and, and getting more discipline, that it, that it goes deeper than that. What are some of the techniques you prescribe to help readers permanently fire their excuses? Yeah, we have about seven that we like to go through. And uh, these are ones that you can appropriate yourself. I'll give you a few of them here. Choose your pain. Um, what we found is that, and we've hit a lot of statistics today, and I know that that 
gives a little bit of interest to our listeners, but I know that that's not what gets people to change. It's not statistics. It's not a scary doctor's report. It really is tapping into what I call um, the Andy Stanley question, if you may have heard of him. He's a leadership development guy. He says, you know, what, what's not going to happen in the world if you don't do the thing that you need to do, you're called to, you'd be best to? Um, who are you not going to love? Um, what emotional thing isn't going to happen? What are your plans? And by getting people to, to choose their pain, to say, you know, what is your life likely to be in three years if you don't do this? Uh, it's huge. I do some uh, career assessment from time to time, and a lot of people are really focused on what it costs to do it. And I say, well, how many months have you been transitioning or looking for work? And they will tell me, and we make a very modest estimate of how much they're losing per month. And anything that shortens that is really the opportunity that they're missing out on. So choosing their pain, looking at all these things is a huge part of starting the process of firing your excuses. Another one is um, the idea of resiliency. And I find resiliency fascinating. I see people coming out of great uh, difficulty, terrible starting uh, points in their life. Um, but I find that it's never been easier. You know this, Jeff, with reading to connect uh, with great books, great role models, listen to podcasts like this. I've got a list of them that I like. And then choosing people that, you, that are your age, that have overcome things. It's easy to compare yourself with somebody much older or younger, depending on your age, but choosing a, what we call in psychology, a cohort group, a group of people your age that are, that are doing what you want them to do. So that's how I develop resiliency, by hanging out with resilient people. And then we talk a little bit about um, the idea of predicting what is likely to come up. I hear a lot of positive talk among entrepreneurs and leaders, but I don't hear enough talk about what tends to sink the ship, and that is the obstacles that we haven't identified and, and kind of inoculated ourselves um, to. Uh, for example, I go to Africa quite a bit, and we take shots for different things we may see later. Our bodies build up the antibodies having had that immunization, and we need to do that with some of the obstacles. Another thing is the assessing our offense and defense ratio. And it's interesting. Some of us are charged the hill, but we've got some maintenance areas in our life, um, physically, spiritually, financially, we've been talking about that may sink the ship. Other people are so into security and maintaining all that that there's, there's no forward motion. So we need to look at that ratio. Both are necessary. And then Marcus and I, we love to talk about this, and I think you'll like it. It's called walking the last mile of denial. And, and it's, I can mix metaphors here, but one might be taking that final step to taking care of your health. I know for me, I've been a big fan of MyFitnessPal, an app, and I put my uh, daily uh, food in that, and I put my exercise in there, and it's just like clockwork. If I will enter my calories eaten, and if I will put whether or not I've exercised, the weight will begin to come off. If I just say I don't need that, I just kind of go on my own, it won't happen. So for me, the last mile denial is to have that accountability. Everybody might not need that for that part of their life, but for me, that's the challenging area, and that's what I need to do. Uh, another example of walking the last mile of the denial would be a lot of us will lock the front door metaphorically of our house, we'll lock the side door, but we'll leave the back door wide open, and we'll wonder why. To, to go back to that food cat, uh, metaphor, uh, I wouldn't think of writing checks for my account and not knowing what my balance is. But most Americans you talk to really can't tell you how many calories a day they need, and most people can't tell you about how many calories they're eating. So it's almost like writing checks and having no idea where you're at. So that's one of the things I like. And then finally, we always like to talk about serving others. That's really the capstone of firing your excuses. 
And, and we even look at even some of the selfish side of this is there's a lot of research that talks about the helper's high. I believe it's uh, Robert C. Aldini out in, uh, I think it's Arizona State University oh, yeah. has done a lot of research about that. So that's fascinating to me is just, um, you know, firing your excuses isn't to be successful, quote unquote, and just all about me. It's really about how do I impact others? So those are some of the techniques and, and principles we talk about in our book. A lot of meat. I appreciate that. And I like that you uh, have and include in each chapter what you call an excuse game changer, the excuse stopper, and then each chapter has that 30-day challenge. Yeah, we encourage people if they take the test to choose, and like just like you did, you had your strong points, your weak points, take one of them and just focus on it for 30 days. Um, we've talked a lot about, I think in the past, a lot of us as speakers about can you multitask? And we're saying, you know what, it's fine just to take one and then maybe take another couple and take the test again in 30 days and see if you've changed. So that's what we encourage people to do. Well, before we move on to some other questions, uh, Dr. Diamond, is there anything else from the book you'd like to share? I think the best thing I want to share is the idea that um, show me, as one person said, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Um, I hope you hear the core of it is that most people who try to change, and our book is all about changing permanently, try to do that with willpower and effort. And what we're saying is don't do this. Don't spend another moment trying to change with willpower. You're going to need all the willpower you can get, but get around other people. And uh, one of my most, uh, I should say, helpful uh, decisions of 2013 was to join and start a mastermind group. And you've probably heard a lot about those, Jeff. There's mm -hmm. different ways to do it. But we, um, we look at each other's businesses. We look at personal things. And we've been meeting now for six months, for an hour and a half, early Wednesday morning. And that's been transformational to all of our businesses. We just had a big um, Christmas holiday celebration with all the wives and girlfriends for the team. And it's just been awesome. But I, I just think we're really on to something. We love it as a group. And I just encourage people to find that type of watering hole for whatever they're going for. If they want to write a book themselves, if they want to do something in business, just to, to start their own mastermind group. It's, it's just huge. I'm in two myself that have been instrumental in, in my growth in the last six months. And I'm actually launching a podcast related one in the spring. Oh, so I'm all about mastermind groups. Yes. If you had to narrow all the personal development lessons you've learned, Dr. Diamond, down to one central theme or idea, what would you say that is? Would you lean on mastermind groups or is it, or is it something else? You know, I would say mastermind groups would be a subset of the things that I would encourage. I would say it's about connection. It's about um, reaching out to the people you already know online. Many of us have hundreds of LinkedIn friends, but we just don't connect with them. Um, it is also about choosing friends wisely. And I, I always ask, I'm always asked, Jeff, if I want to redevelop my social network, not just for business, but personally, where do you find the best people? And I can tell you where you don't find them. You don't find them in places that tend to lend themselves to more uh, amazing but narcissistic folks. But where I do find them is in the work that I do to help others. Uh, charitable groups, I meet some of the best people on the planet. Um, I meet wealthy folks. I meet people that are not wealthy, that have great hearts, people that are other-centered in giving. They're as interested in helping me develop as they are in what they're doing. And, and that is just a key takeaway. So we, we love the idea of serving because most, most of our best friends, Marcus and I, have met in our serving capacities. And it's just been amazingly fun, too. Well, when your time on this planet is through, what do you ultimately hope your legacy to be? 
Well, that's a big question. Let me see if I can give a big answer here. I know people from a lot of different backgrounds. I come from a Christian background. So for me, it is all about serving. Um, I want to maximize my ability to help others and to help people find what they're best in, whether you're a CEO or you're in transition, whether you want to start something on your own. But each of us, and I I love and I'm sure you do, uh, the work of Marcus Buckingham Mm -hmm. and Strength Finders. And I just uh, know there are things that I can be mediocre at with a lot of effort and things that I can just do in my sleep and I can build on it. So I'm headed back to Africa very soon. And I've been there several times helping out in a township where AIDS is prevalent, but you can do a whole lot right in your own neighborhood. But I think that's what gets me up in the morning is I'm hoping that some of you all will, will take the concept of fire your excuses and co-brand it and talk to us and say, Hey, how do we fire excuses for your company? How do we fire excuses for the kids, for, for the homeless? And there's a lot of ways we can go with that. But I think that's Marcus and I's heart is to, to get people to think about what more they can do. And that's what I want my legacy to be all about. Can you name for us a couple of books you've read in the last few years that have had a great impact on you and maybe how or why? Yes. My favorite one of 2013, Have You Heard of the One Thing by Gary Keller, Jay Papasan. Yes. I actually hope to have one or both of them on the show here real soon. Yes. And Jay's Jay's becoming a pal of mine and I would be happy to introduce you, but it's a great book about focus and planning out your next steps and, and going through the book. And we actually use it as part of our mastermind. It was fascinating because I had a few goals and when I backtracked from 10 years out to what I needed to do this week, this month, this year, I realized there was no way they were going to happen. And I had some decisions to make. So it's a very clarifying book. I highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. Another one that you may have heard of is Ready, Fire, Aim yes. by uh, Michael Masterson. And he looks at what I call, in my vernacular, the idea of avoid activity. Things that we do that we think we're making progress, but we're really just delaying and kicking the can down the road. Uh, maybe you're starting a new venture or a new project and you're all about the business cards or the office setup. And he's saying, you know, at the very beginning, you need to do a couple things. First, find out if anybody would buy your product if you made it before you spend the money and investment to develop it fully. And a lot of people are starting to talk about that. And then secondarily, uh, if what you're doing is not 80% sales at the beginning of your venture, then you're probably having a blind spot or a weakness right there. You are in denial. And I love that. It was just a real wake up to say, you know, what, how am I using my time and my business? Well, before we wrap up, Dr. Diamond, uh, what is on the horizon uh, for you? Tell us what we should be on the lookout for. Well, Marcus and I are really excited. We're going to be starting our own Fire Your Excuses podcast, and we've got a workbook, maybe a field guide, if you will, that will accompany the book that's coming out. We've also had hundreds of people take the assessment, and so we're just about at 1,000 now. Once we get there, we're going to create a white paper or uh, give back some of the information that we found. It's definitely confidential, but we've got the data as well to look at that. So we're pretty excited about it. It's going to be a, a good new year. Well, I mentioned the website earlier, fireyourexcuses.com. I highly recommend that you take the Fire Your Excuses self-assessment. And don't dread it like I did. It actually only takes about 10 or 15 minutes to go through. There you through. go. There you go. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Diamond. I really appreciate it and enjoyed the book very, very much. And this is going to be a, a resource uh, that I go back to again and again down the road. Thank you, Jeff. And thank you, listeners. You can let Dr. Bill Diamond know what you thought of today's episode by sending him a tweet. It's drdiamond on Twitter. That's D-R-D-Y-M-E-N-T, at Dr. Diamond on Twitter.
If you host your own podcast or are considering launching one soon, don't forget about Podcaster Academy. Launching in February, your chance to be one of the first 25 students in the course for just $2.97. Go to podcasteracademy.com to find out more. You know, iTunes isn't the only place you can rate the podcast. You can do so on Stitcher as well. It's my favorite app to use on my Android device for listening to podcasts. To rate this one, just go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash Stitcher. And as always, you can rate the podcast on iTunes as well. Readtoleadpodcast.com slash iTunes to do that. Thank you to Paul Vandermill for his five-star review. He says, I agree with the thoughts of fellow listeners who have encouraged you to begin and launch Podcaster Academy. Thanks very much, Paul. Well, that'll do it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time, December 17th for the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com and chat with other members at facebook.com slash readtoleadnation. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You really are a heel. You're as cuddly as a cactus. You're as charming as an eel, Mr. Grinch.